Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, hello, church. My name is Dave Lombardo, and I have the joy of being on staff here at Upper Room Church. It's so good to be with you today. What a time it is to be a sports fan in the GTA, right? Come on. Uh, at least that's, that's, that's what I've been told. Uh, total honesty. I'm not really much of a sports fan and we don't have cable at home. And I know that this is going to sound like probably sacrilegious or like offensive to some of you, but I didn't watch even one minute of any of the NBA finals. I'm not talking about game six alone, like any of the NBA finals. Uh, so I'll just like back up here for a second and be quiet. And any of you need to just wrap, finish up your booing, or if any of you feel like you need to walk out, because you're just too upset with me. I, I, I kind of understand that. Uh, my wife told me that if I was going to talk about, you know, that I'm not a sports fan or didn't watch any basketball, that I need to be respectful of the people who do. And, and absolutely I am. This is not a criticism. I'm just not into sports. There's no criticism of sports or anything like that. As a matter of fact, I love the excitement that has come into Toronto. I love the excitement that is in the GTA around this. I, I'm, I was born and raised in Scarborough. Toronto's home for me. So seeing so many people being united around this cause, like not even just in our city, but in our country and even all of these Jurassic parks around the world or whatever. Uh, I love seeing the way that it's brought people together. Think of Toronto, for example. How many times have we heard that Toronto is, is, is one of the most, if not the most, diverse cities in all of the world? Right? Hundreds, if not thousands, of, of ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, subcultures represented, uh, such a wide variety, as far as socioeconomic diversity is concerned, such a wide variety, innumerable cultures. There are so many people here, and yet something like a basketball team making a run for the championship is enough for everyone to kind of just put aside their, their, their differences and unite around we the North. That's actually what we the North is, isn't it? We the North is this unifying statement. It's saying it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you've come from someplace else. It doesn't matter if you still are in some other place. If you can say we the North, then we are together. We are one because we are the North. I actually, singer-songwriter uh, Sarah McLaughlin, who I never in 100,000 years ever thought I would ever quote in, in a sermon, but, but here you go. She's the one who sang the Canadian National Anthem before Game 6, which, I, again, I didn't see it, but I was reading in the news and saw this article. A huge basketball fan that she is, apparently. And, and what she said was, it's just very uniting. I think we live in such divisive times. It's really wonderful that there's something like this that can bring everyone together. Now, the truth is, I had actually written this sermon before Sarah McLaughlin even sang or even said that in her interview before uh, they went into game six and before the Raptors even won it. But I, I bring it up because it actually makes the point as widely different as people may be. It's still possible to put aside our differences and be united as one. Even if it's just for a short time, even if it's just momentary, we can put those differences aside. It's still actually possible. 
We don't just see this in sports. We see this in a whole variety of places. There, there are other examples of ways that we see people putting aside their differences and coming together for a common cause, right? It may be advocating for a cause. It may be uh, donating to a particular charity or organization, uh, working together on a joint project, uh, perhaps a, a social justice issue where people are protesting or banding together. We, we see many instances of vastly diverse people finding a way to come together as one, even though they may have a number of different as much as this may be true, as often as we do see issues, or as often as we do see evidence of diverse people banding together, we also see in our culture a whole lot of areas where there's division. And, and we see ways that people are actually being pulled apart from each other as opposed to being pushed together. Uh, in his book, um, Douglas, uh, in his book called Team Human, Writer uh, Douglas Rushkoff talks about this idea, which I think speaks to the way that we can find ourselves confused. It, where in one, in one moment we may be hearing a message of how we need to be united with other people, but in, in another minute we may be hearing uh, messages that actually tell us the reasons we need to separate or divide ourselves from other people. Uh, in his book, Team Human, um, Douglas Rushkoff talks about uh, these various social mechanisms, some that we're aware of, some that we're unaware of, that all uh, influence the way that we think, we act, and we feel, particularly when it comes to interacting with others. And he talks about how within our society, we're kind of pushed to two, one of two extremes. In one sense, uh, he talks about how we may be pushed towards individualism, right? He says, there's messages in our, in our society that we hear where we feel pressure to fight for and defend ourselves, to, to defend our own interests, our own desires, to put ourselves and our interests first before anyone else. And, and we hear actually this message of individuality all the time. You need to have your voice heard. Your, your, uh, your opinion counts. Uh, don't be like all of the rest. You need to stand out. You need to make a difference on your own. And he says that as, as, as important as a thing it is to understand who we are or to understand what, might, what may make us distinct, the more each person actually leans into this, this version of individualism, it actually becomes a desocializing thing because as we fight for autonomy, what begins to happen is we begin to believe a lie that we don't actually have a need for other people. Uh, we begin to believe that interdependence on others is actually a sign of weakness. And so he goes on to talk about the various ways that this plays itself out in this issue of individualism. But then he talks about the opposite end of the spectrum, which is conformity, which is this other set of, of messages that we hear from a wide variety of places that essentially say we're all the same anyways. There's no need competing. There's no use standing up for what you believe in. There's no, there's no point trying to make a distinct, unique, have a unique thought. At the end of the day, we are all the same as everyone else, so we may as well just conform and recognize that we're all the same. We're really no different. He sums it up by saying both of these approaches depend on separating people from one another. And as you may be able to tell from the title of his book, Team Human, the whole purpose of his book is not just to be a misanthrope bashing uh, all of humanity, but to actually say these are some of the problems that we have. We're confused about who we are and how we're supposed to interact with one another. There has to be a better way. And the better way, he suggests, is by uniting together and remembering who we are. We are Team Human. Now, this is confusing. 
This, this can get confusing, right? Again, when it comes to individualism, some of us look at that and say, no, I think it's a good thing that I'm different. Yeah, I have some similarities to other people, but, but I want to have a bit of my own style, a bit of my own flair. My own particular set of life experiences makes me, individu- makes me an individual. But, but we don't want to go all the way to conformity because we don't actually want to say every single person is the same or every per- single person should be the same. Instead, the tension that we feel is, is it possible to be a distinct, unique individual in the midst of a group of other diverse people where we're not all exactly the same, but at least we may be heading in the same direction. And so we might ask questions of our society. uh, Is it possible to have diversity without division? Can we actually be different or does it have to lead to uh, to division? That we have to be separate from one another, segregated from one another. Is unity possible without uniformity? Like, is it possible for us to be like one, to be one-minded, headed in one direction, uh, connected in, united, in unity or in around a particular thing without it causing us all to be the exact same, to be uniform, to be in uniformity? Is healthy, honest, vulnerable, and loving community actually possible? These are good questions. Questions that maybe you've had lots of conversation about, or perhaps you're just starting to think about them now. As important as they are, though, if I'm going to be frank, we actually have to ask these questions, not just of the world around us, but we also have to ask them about the church that we're in. Or not necessarily this church, uh, but I'll come back to talking a little bit more about the broader church around the world. But what about within the Christian experience of life? Like, what about theological differences that we may have? Is it possible to have distinctions and yet still be united as one? What about the differences in our preferred style of worship? Is it possible to have differing views of how we feel or think those things should be and yet still be together as one united community? What about our ecclesiological preferences or comforts? An ecclesiological, that's just a really fancy way of talking about the views or the traditions we have and hold on to about how the church ought to function, how it ought to be led, how it ought to look and feel, uh, how it ought to be structured, how it ought to be directed. Is it possible to still have unity even though we may have different ecclesiological views? Or what about uh, things like ethnic and cultural diversity? What about our ethnic and cultural backgrounds? Is unity still possible even though there are so many of us from so many different places? Uh, Just about 60 years ago, on April 17, 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in America. That is a powerful statement. Yes, it was said uh, in the midst of civil, of the midst of the civil rights movement, but I think there's still a lot of truth to that question, to that statement rather, that begs a big question for us today. Yeah, we live in the GTA, which has again people from all different backgrounds. Is it possible that we are actually uh, steering away from welcoming people from various backgrounds because we're unsure of what they're like? Perhaps there's a xenophobia. We're not sure what they're like, uh, and so we actually segregate. Or is this something that we're actually trying to lean into and say, is it possible? What would it look like for us people from all over the world to be together, worshiping together in one place? Is that something that we can get over and unite us? and allowed to allow us to be united within or is that something that needs to keep us separate 
I think we need to be careful with this one in particular as it pertains to uh, ethnic differences or ethnic churches. In some instances, ethnic churches exist because they actually speak that common language. They speak Spanish or they speak Mandarin or they speak uh, Tagalog or whatever it may be. And so those communities become ethnic churches because as new people come to our country, They're speaking that language. That's all that they understand. If churches exist to be ethnic churches from a missiological point of view, like it's a part of their mission, they're trying to reach people through that, I think that there's actually something beautiful worth exploring there. The problem that Martin Luther King Jr. is getting at, and what I'm talking about here, about unity in the midst of diversity, is when we're not trying to actually do this in a way to reach people, but actually instead what we're doing is saying, no, 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 no. Uh, my, My language, my cultural background is superior to yours or so different than yours that we actually could never get over those differences so we actually ought to segregate and separate ourselves. That's when we begin to have a problem and so not only do we ask these questions about whether or not unity is possible in the society around us but we ask is it possible in the midst of all the differences that are in the church which to me begs this big question. Why does it seem why does it seem that a basketball team can be so unifying no matter what our differences are, but within the church, it can still seem like it's so difficult to achieve. We all have different experiences with the church. Perhaps some of you are are here today for the very first time ever. And and if that's you, then welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. You've actually picked a great Sunday to get a broader understanding of what we as Upper Room are about, but really what this following Jesus thing is all about. I'm really glad that you're here. So maybe you've had uh, very little exposure to the church or no exposure to the church. Maybe some of you have been around in this church or another one for a very long time. Some of you are going to know the beautiful stories of how the church has actually played a significant role in bringing people together and unifying them around a common cause, a common mission, a common vision. But there are certainly going to be others who who can tell lots and lots of stories about the way that this has been very negative or very bad and how the church hasn't been something that's united, but it's actually drawn people apart. More questions that we wonder about then become questions like, is the church a place where distinctions and differences go to die? as we all conform and become exactly like the others around us? Or is the church the place where this diversity is able to come together to create a beautiful picture of who God has actually created us to be in the first place? And what if that second bullet is the question we're after? What does that beautiful picture actually look like? How do we come to understand who God has actually intended for us to be and what he's doing to make us look like that picture? I've raised a lot of questions. And the reason I've done that, I've done that with no hope of answering them all today. But rather for the sake of telling you that for the next six weeks, this is what we're going to be looking at together as a church. We're going to be looking for answers and practical insights uh, into the ways in which Jesus is actually working towards uniting us and making us one while showing us how to humbly hold on to some of the things that differentiate us. Meaning, we're going to see how Scripture, the Word of God, shows us the ways in which we can be distinct and different and diverse and yet still united around one common cause. And the way we're going to do this is by journeying through the the, the New Testament letter to the church in uh, Philippi, a place called Philippi. You'll know it from your Bible 
um, is a letter uh, called Philippians. For the next six weeks, all of the Sunday morning teaching is going to be right out of the book of Philippians. We also have a blog uh, that's going to be going on each week that has a reading plan where each one of us will be able to read through the letter to the Philippians together with some reflection and discussion questions. And I'm really excited for us because it's not just talking about unity. It's actually going to be practicing the ways that we are being unified together as a church as we walk through this letter together. Now, you might ask yourself the question, why would we rely on a letter that was sent from a guy who was in prison to a church 2,000 years ago? Why would we look to that to give us insight into our modern day situations? Uh, Well, I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. One thing I think we're going to see is that in many ways, the church today still deals with a lot of the issues that they were dealing with in their day. More than that, our belief as a church is that the Word of God actually shows us the way that we were meant to live and function in the first place. If God is the one who created us, then we want to actually pay attention to the way that He's directing us to live, because He's showing us how to live to the fullest. So today, we're only going to focus on three verses. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. It says this, this is what was actually read for us earlier, but I'm just going to recap these couple of verses. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. The Apostle Paul is the man who wrote this letter, and he was called by God to go uh, into new places where they hadn't heard about Jesus yet, and to tell as many people as he possibly could about who Jesus is and the ways in which he can transform their lives. He was particularly called to do this among people groups that had no Jewish heritage, that had no exposure to, uh, to the Jewish God. And much of the New Testament, that's the second half of the Bible, much of the New Testament is writings from the Apostle. Paul to various churches that he was instrumental in founding, churches that he had started, churches that he had planted. When he was writing this to a church in Philippi, so the Philippian people came from a place called Philippi, just like Torontonian people come from a place called Toronto, Canadian people from a place called Canadian, that's the whole idea. Um, When he wrote this, the church in Philippi was about 10 or 11 years old. So in a sense, this church was pretty young still was still finding its own identity, was still in the process of growing, reaching uh, new people, and it was existing in Philippi, which is a bustling and diverse city. Now, some scholars have said that that Philippi was actually the first place that Paul ever preached on European soil. And more than that, um, they would even attribute some of the prosperity of the city of Philippi. They attribute the prosperity of the city of Philippi to the Christian community there as they moved in, as they influenced business, as they influenced the, the academics, as they influenced politics. All of that kind of channeling back to the Christian evangelization work that Paul did as he preached the good news of Jesus to the people in Philippi. Now, that is just, in one sense, a really cool way of looking at the way that Christian history has influenced the world around us. That's pretty cool. But I would also say on a personal level, or for the sake of our local church, Upper Room, that that's a really important factor. As we step into this reach vision, this multi-site vision, to be one church of five congregations in the places that we live, this is important to us because our belief is that churches exist for souls and for cities. 
Wherever we go, we want to be telling other people about the transformational power that Jesus Christ brings. That He is able to change your life. That He's able to revitalize your life. Actually resurrect you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Change your perspective on everything. We want to do that wherever we go. At the same time, though, we want to be purposefully engaging with the needs of the communities we're in so that this type of revitalization that is felt is spiritual but also on a community level. So in many ways, this letter that was written to a church plant 2,000 years ago actually gives us good perspective on the ways and uh, on the ways that we want to be moving forward as a church together today. Before I continue, I feel the need to pause and, and, and define something that I've kind of bounced back and forth on. It can be a little confusing when, I, when we use the word or the phrase, the church. Especially if you're someone who uh, you know, is, is here for the first time, is new to exploring uh, faith in Jesus or faith at all. Maybe this is your first time uh, in a church and you're like, well, I mean, where you are involved today in a movie theater, those of you in Bolton, you're, you're in a community center. And so there's this sense of, well, we're gathered together as a church, but we're not necessarily in a church because this doesn't look like a church building. The whole thing can be a little confusing. So let me define this just to help us along. The church and the church. Notice the difference in how those two words are spelled. The church has a capital C and the church has a lowercase c. First, we have to understand the church with a capital C is referring to every Christ follower everywhere. There are people following Jesus all over the world, many of whom we will never get the chance to meet personally in this life. But even still, they are in every way connected to us because we are all part of the capital C universal church. Sometimes we hear the word universal church. Sometimes this group of people is referred to the body of Christ. Sometimes it's referred to the global church. Capital C church is every Christian everywhere is a part of the church. Then we use it the second way, which is church with a lowercase c, which is referring to local communities of Christ followers. A local church is just like what it sounds like. A local community gathering of people who follow Jesus and get together with some level of frequency to worship Him together. That, that's what the URCC, Upper Room Community Church, is a local church. The Presbyterian Church down the street from where you live, that's a local church. The Pentecostal group that, that meets in the storefront near, near you know, where you've driven by before in the plaza you've driven by, that's a local church. Many local churches have buildings. So in a sense, we could go on Google Maps and we could type in church and it would bring up all sorts of churches. We could point and we could say, oh, there's a church building. And we can say that's a church. And there's some truth to that, some accuracy to that. But, but to be more accurate, we have to understand that wherever there is a body of, of believers, wherever there's a group or a community of people following Jesus, there is a church. So that's why we as a church can meet in a movie theater or can meet in a community center, or, or meet in an actual what looks like a church building with a steeple, or, or, or wherever else they may meet in, a, in, a, in, a, in an auditorium in a university campus, wherever it may be. So uh, the church in Philippi was a local church. Upper Room is a local church. But the people following Jesus in these communities are all a part of the capital C universal and global church. And we're going to try our hardest at Upper Room to, to clarify what we're talking about when we're talking about the church, the capital C church, the lowercase c church, just so everybody stays on the same page. 
Okay, so let's circle back now to the letter of Philippians that Paul wrote because it actually gives us so much good insight. And again, even just from those first couple of verses, we have so much insight into what this church looked like. It shows us how from the beginning, church, the local church and the global church has always been and has always meant to be made up of people from various backgrounds coming together and uniting as one, being one community of people, unified, worshiping and following Jesus, living out his purposes together. If you want to get a little bit of the backstory for um, the, the, what was taking place in Philippi at the time of Paul's ministry there, his mission work there, you can go to Acts chapter 16. The entirety of the book to Act, of Acts chapter, of Acts, the entirety of the book of Acts tells the story of all of these new church plants and the way that the good news of Jesus made its way into brand new territory. But we see in Acts chapter 16 um, the story of the Philippian church. And actually, the Greek uh, historian, uh, Luke is his name, who wrote, out, who wrote the book of Acts, in chapter 16, as he tells the beginnings of the church in, in, in Philippi, he chooses to pay close attention to the conversion stories of three individuals. So he starts by talking about a woman named Lydia. We're told that Lydia is from a place called Thyatira, which means she wasn't originally from, uh, from Philippi. She would have been an ethic, ethnically Asian person that traveled to Philippi for the purpose of doing business because it tells us that she was a dealer of purple cloth. Purple is a sign of royalty. Purple cloth was very expensive, held onto only by the, most, by the most highly esteemed people in society. All of that basically means that Lydia was a fashionista. If Lydia existed today, she'd be the kind of person who was rich and successful. She'd be a trendsetter. She'd be a businesswoman. The kind of person who has a beach house in Malibu, a flat in London, and a villa in Milan. And hugely successful, yet even still, given her intellect, given the fact that she was probably a strategist, probably somebody with a lot of vision, probably a very busy person as she was trying to grow her business, that is what actually would have brought her to Philippi. But more than that, even with all of this busyness and success and, and wealth and all of this, there was still a hole in her life that caused her to want to explore faith in God. Because at the time that Paul met Lydia, Lydia was actually a part of a women's prayer group where women got together to pray to God and to read the scriptures and study the scripture together. It's pretty interesting. She is somebody who was, it's, we're told she's a God-fearer and that she believed there was a God, but she was on this journey of discovering whether or not the God we talk about here, the God of Scripture, uh, the creator of the universe, was that actual God. So by the time Paul had got there to begin preaching to her, she was primed and ready for this. And Paul did preach and did explain the good news of Jesus, and she received that. She believes, and she's baptized, and actually we're told her entire household is baptized, and she invites Paul and his companions to come and stay in their place to keep them safe on their journey. That is one of the first converts, if not the first convert in the Philippian church. Really cool. But the story continues. And we're now introduced to a, a, a girl. We don't get her name, but we're told that she's a slave girl who is possessed by a spirit and she's being exploited by her owners because this spirit enables her to, to be a fortune teller, to tell, the, to tell the future to people that would come and give money. And so Paul comes and, and as he's there, he's preaching, doing his thing. This young girl, for whatever reason, begins to follow Paul and his companions as they go about doing ministry. And wherever they go, this girl, who's still possessed, keeps yelling and keeps shouting that these are servants of the Most High God. Pay attention to what they're saying. They know, the, they know about 
about the ways that you can be saved from your sin. And she's yelling and she's yelling. And it gets to a point where the Bible actually says, Scripture actually says that Paul got so annoyed with her that he turned around and cast out the demon because he wanted her to be quiet. The demon goes out of her and she's silenced and begins to then walk away from her slave owners and follow Paul wherever he goes. She is the second person that is brought into the church in Philippi. We're talking about the group of people right now that are going to join together to go and be a part of that core group that launches our site in King Oak Ridges. These are the people that Paul was essentially bringing together as his core group as he was preparing to, 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 to launch the church in Philippi. Because the girl, um, while she was under her demon possession, was so good at fortune telling, she made a lot of money. So the fact that she walked away from her slave owners enraged her slave owners. So they actually had Paul charged and thrown in prison. When he's thrown in prison, this is when we meet the third convert, the third new person to the body of believers in Philippi, the jailer. While they're in jail, at midnight that night, there's an earthquake. The earthquake shakes the ground so badly that the doors on the jail actually break open and all of the chains that had them held, had, had them held uh, are, are broken loose. So all of the prisoners in there, Paul, his companions, everyone else, they're all able to run out and be set free. This earthquake uh, obviously wakes up the jailer who had fallen asleep in the middle of the night. And as soon as he sees that the door is broken, the scripture says that he pulls out his knife to want to kill himself because he knew that if anybody gets out, He's as good as dead anyway. That was his responsibility. But Paul assures him and says, don't, don't freak out. Everybody is still here. So Paul had stopped all of the prisoners from running away. The, the jailer was so thankful to Paul for saving his life that the jailer says, tell me why you did that. Tell me about what possessed you. What, what actually made you choose to, instead of running away, try and keep everybody here? And that is begging the question, tell us about your God. And so Paul tells about Jesus. And the jailer believes. And they go back to his household. And his whole household believes and is baptized. Why, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because I honestly believe that when Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you, that he was thinking about these people that he was thinking about these three. Not just these three, but, but the others that came to know Jesus through the community that was started through this diverse and distinct group of people. And I mean, you could not get a group of people that are more different. Lydia is rich and successful. She has everything. The slave girl has nothing. She's actually owned by other people to the point where she doesn't own anything. She is a possession of someone else. And a blue-collar working man who is as good as dead. And yet, these are the people that God chose to put in place to give us a picture of what the church is meant to look like. Again, you couldn't get a more diverse group of what these people, a more diverse look, you couldn't get a more diverse community. And yet, the church began to grow in Philippi as these people were foundational members because this is what Jesus does. He creates a brand new community of incredibly diverse people, people who you'd think would never be in the same room with one another, let alone united around one common cause. And, and this is what Jesus does in spite of us, because everything in our human nature pushes us to divide, pushes us to fragment, to argue. But Jesus is uniting us in the vision that even though we may be different, we can still be made united as one for his sake. 
We can be united in worshiping and thanking Him for what He's done in our lives and the lives of those around us. We can be united in learning to follow Him together. We're united in, in being made one as, uh, as we pursue the mission of reaching people who don't know about Jesus yet. And so Paul says in his opening words that he's thankful for these people and he remembers them and he's filled with joy when he thinks about them and prays with them. And he continues and he says it's not just the people, but it's actually the type of relationship he had with them. The type of thing he talks about here is um, the partnership that he had. He says there's a great partnership that they shared. And actually this word partnership is the word koinonia. Koinonia is the Greek word. Koinonia is the type of partnership, the type of deep relationship that is experienced with others when there's an emphasis on shared values, continued support of one another, and active participation in each other's lives. This is the kind of thing we're after as a church. We are longing for koinonia, a type of relationship where we are so closely partnering together in one another's lives that we couldn't even understand how we might go forward trying to be individuals, doing things by ourselves. We need to be dependent on other people and know that other people need to be, to be dependent on us. This was the actual experience that Paul had with the believers in Philippi. Actually, Tony Samet, blogger extraordinaire, uh, our pastor here at Upper Room, uh, our, our discipleship pastor here at Upper Room, and uh, soon-to-be site pastor at, at our Bolton site. In the blog, uh, upperroom.ca slash blog, you got to be reading there every week for the reading plan for the questions. It's just so rich. Uh, Tony wrote about this type of partnership that existed. He says, the Philippian church really were partners with Paul. In fact, the reason he was writing was to thank them for sending Epaphroditus, one of their own, to him with some money. As a prisoner in Rome, Paul wasn't exactly given the red carpet treatment. Food and water weren't provided for him. If he was going to eat, it would only be because friends would drop by to give him food. And since Paul was imprisoned for treason, that in and of itself was risky because it meant exposing yourself as a friend of a traitor to Rome. So it was a major act of partnership, a major act of koinonia that the Philippian church made to Paul. That's the power of one. That's what koinonia looks like. Risking it all for the sake of Jesus. Knowing that you may have come from a place where you never would have risked your life for another, but now knowing that Jesus has given his life for you, there's nothing that could actually keep you from giving that same type of love and service and partnership to others. So let's just reflect just on what we've learned from Philippians, what we've learned from Paul today. First of all is that the church is meant to be made up of every different kinds of person. The church locally, the church globally, is meant to look like people from every type of ethnic background, cultural background, socioeconomic statuses, learning styles. As different as you can think people are, the church is meant to bring all of those together because what we're seeing is that there's no difference too big for Jesus to break down those walls that divide and unite people in their faith and their desire to follow him together. Jesus doesn't play favorites with any group of people and is showing us that neither should we. Our strength is actually in our diversity. Another thing we've learned is that the church and the church, the capital C church and the lowercase c church, the church globally and the church locally, survives and thrives as we partner together in experiencing koinonia. We may have differences, but we all have needs, and many of those needs are similar and so we actually need to rely on one another. 
We need the shared experiences of others. We need the support of one another. And as we grow in, in partnership and interdependence on one another, that is actually where Jesus continues to do his work of making us one, showing us how we have so much more in common than we ever could have thought while not having to lose the things that make us diverse. And this all leads to my final point, because these two things, as good as they are, it's not actually the complete and final picture. Because Paul says one more thing, and it's this last part. He says he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it into completion. That word completion is a visionary word. It's a word that's pointing us towards understanding who we currently are, where we're at, and actually who we're being made to be, who we're becoming. Each one of us, in our own way, plays a purposeful and important role in the picture that the church is becoming. And what is that picture? What are we talking about? What is that vision? Well, partially, that's what this whole series is about. So that's what's going to be happening for the next number of weeks. We talk about this picture of what the church is meant to look like. But, but simply, the church is meant to be a community of people who have set aside their differences and have chosen to lean into their similarities for the sake of following Jesus together. People from every background, working together, joining together, becoming one, because we know that Jesus has made us new and He is doing a work to bring us together. Think of it like a jigsaw puzzle. Actually, uh, it, uh, sometime right about now, there should be some baskets coming around that have a little small jigsaw puzzle piece in it. And, and, and as that basket comes by, just take one and, and hang on to it and pass the basket on because I'd love for everyone in the whole room to have one of these jigsaw puzzle pieces. Think about this whole idea of uniqueness and differences, but working together as one in the idea of a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw, a single piece, I should say, a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle is not complete on its own. This is why you don't go to the store and buy a one-piece jigsaw puzzle. There's no such thing. Uh, that would actually just be a picture. You're, you're buying a picture at that point. A jigsaw puzzle or a jigsaw piece, a jigsaw piece is unique in its own way. It has its own colors on it. It has its own shape. They come in various sizes. It looks different than all of the other pieces. As a matter of fact, this piece, the piece that you're pulling from came from a box of 500 different pieces that all look different. All, I mean, they might feel the same on one side, smooth and rough on the other, but the colors and the shapes and the knobbies and the, the openings, they're all, they're all different. And actually, that's the whole point of a jigsaw puzzle piece, isn't it? It's essential that a jigsaw puzzle piece is distinct, that it's unique, that it looks different than all of the others. That's the point. The point is that they don't all look the same, but when you take those 500 pieces and you spend the time organizing them and putting them into the unique place that they were designed to fulfill, you then begin to see the big picture of what that puzzle is. So, so the picture on the box that the puzzle came out of can only be seen when each piece works together and is united with the other pieces. Imagine you're doing a puzzle at home and you realize you've lost a few pieces. Maybe you've got 496 pieces out of a 500 piece puzzle. You're going to do all 496 pieces, but then you're going to say, this puzzle is not done. Because that puzzle actually can't be done. You can't see the entire picture until you add those additional four pieces that were meant to be there in the first place. We know that a puzzle is not complete until every piece is put into play. 
So what do you do? If that was you at home working on this puzzle, you're not just going to say, ah, eh, good enough. You're probably going to look everywhere trying to find the pieces. You're not going to take another piece from another puzzle and try and shove it in a spot. It's, it's not going to work, again, because it's essential that each piece is put in the exact spot it was meant to be in. So you go looking everywhere. You go and you try to find that piece to fill the spots that they were designed to fill in. And you know what? This is a simple illustration, but it's an analogy of what the church is meant to look like. Each one of us, uniquely distinct, essentially needing to be different, actually created in a way where we have our differences and our diversities, but being brought together and put into the place where God has wanted us to be for a long time, creating the big picture that is the church. And that word completion it gives us this sense of hope because we know we're not there yet. We know that as a local church, we've got lots to learn. We know that as a global church, there still is division and there still is segregation. But we know and we hold fast to the truth. We believe and we hope that Jesus is continuing to do this work. And one day when he returns, he will do it once and for all. And the thing that we're longing for now will become final, will become official. We will be this diverse church living in harmony and mutual love for one another, knowing that even though we may have our differences, there's no challenge too big for us. There isn't enough stuff, there's nothing for us to fight about because we've got too much in common in Jesus than we do differences from our experiences. This is what we long for and this is what we hope for. This is who God promises to make us to be. Really the big picture of this, Paul talks about it later and we'll come back to this passage in a few weeks. The big picture is that every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the picture of the church. People from every walk of life, every corner of the world coming together and uniting as one for the sake of worshiping Jesus and living out the mission he's calling us to. And so here's what I want you to do with that piece of the puzzle that you're holding. I want you to put it in your pocket, maybe your wallet, maybe in your purse, maybe your backpack. I want you to carry this piece of puzzle with you wherever you go for the next six weeks. I know that sounds crazy. I'm going to try and do it too. And it's possible I'll lose it. And who knows if it's going to go through the wash. But we're going to try. But we're not going to do this just because this is some fun thing that we should try and challenge one another on to see if we can actually do it. Rather, I want this piece, this jigsaw puzzle piece to serve each one of us as a reminder to prompt us to pray about what Jesus may have in store for us in our unique role. A couple of questions for us to think about. Hold on to it and pray these things. Jesus... What role do you have for me to play as you build your church here in the GTA? What role do you have for me as you use the church to put this broken world back together? That's a big question, isn't it? Being, speaking of being put back together, that's the point of the puzzle. Each of us has our place. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I continue through this list. As you, Jesus, what role or what part do you have for me to play as you guide Upper Room in pursuing the multi-site vision you've given us? What role do you have for me to play as you break into the lives of those who don't know you yet? What part, we're asking these things in prayer, don't forget. What part do you have for me to play as you unite each one of us into one beautiful community? That's a challenge, church. 
one that I think is going to be worth it. So for six weeks, as we learn together, as we study scripture together, as we pray together, as we read the blog together, as we read the book of Philippians together, as we trust that God is going to do a work in uniting us together, we're saying, Lord, how is it that you are making us one? Let's do that together. He is doing that uniting work, and I'm so hopeful. He's doing something for us and in our lives that we could never ask or imagine for ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you that you gave us Jesus, who comes to show us the way that we can be united with one another, but even more than that, powerfully works to do things in a supernatural way to unite us. And so in a sense, Lord, my prayer is simple. I pray, God, that even as we hold on to these pieces, as we journey together as a church for the next six weeks, that you would reveal to us on an individual level and on a community-wide level the ways in which you are working among us to make us one. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us courage to be honest with the things that hold us back, the things that we see as barriers, that you would show us the way you have broken those down to unite us with others around us. And I ask you, Jesus, again, that picture of completion, that vision, that thing that we hope for. Lord, use us to become people who actually show the world around us what this church has always been meant to look like. A diverse group of people coming together and with one voice, with one heart, worshiping you. Every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that you, Jesus, are Lord. And yes, we have our differences, but we've got the most important thing in common. And that is you, Jesus. So we just ask in your grace and in your mercy, make these things so for us, please, Jesus. We trust you and we believe that you can do this. We ask it in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. We love you.